beginning a new series in the book of Ruth. And um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you. And it's right at the very beginning of the Bible. You have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Page 222 in your blue pew Bible. As uh, you find your way to that, I want you to know that when Nancy and I sit down and watch a movie or a show, it's really more rewarding if I have the remote control in my hand. (laughs) It's just a more enjoyable experience for both of us. And the reason that is is because I'm sure she misses subtle things that happen in the show. And with me having the remote control, I can pause it and rewind and say, hey, did you notice when they cut right there, the person wasn't standing in the same place when they cut back in? No, I didn't notice that, Paul. I bet no one noticed that. I bet no one cares about that. But it makes an hour show go by in three hours. It's very fascinating. You know, sometimes I want to pick out the music or the lighting or notice a picture in the background or how the extra circled through there twice, all kinds of things that really make the experience pleasurable. And uh, now you know how to pray for Nancy. And the transition to the book of Ruth is the book of Ruth is really one of the most beautiful and intricate stories in the Bible. And fortunately for you, I'm preaching So I have the remote control, and there's lots of little things, words or phrases that you might not pick up on, and I couldn't possibly pause the remote control every time, but as we go through these four chapters, I'm going to try to pause and just focus on a name or a word or a phrase that in just one reading you might not connect in a way that would be helpful in your reading. So, when these four weeks are over, you'll say, Paul, please don't ever do that again. Give us the remote control back. Uh, But that's how we're going to go through this book. And I'll just give you one sample. When Naomi, one of the main characters here, leaves her home in Israel, she's in the town of Bethlehem, she goes away full. She has a husband and two, two sons. And when she comes back, in verse 21, she says, I've come back empty. So fullness and emptiness is a theme. When her daughter-in-law, Ruth, goes and meets another main character in the story, Boaz, and is gleaning in the fields, Boaz says, I don't want you to return to your mother-in-law, Naomi, empty. And so she pulls out her apron And he fills it up with grain, and she comes back and dumps it basically in the lap of Naomi, saying, hey, you're you're full now. And then in the last chapter, really one of the most beautiful pieces of the story, Boaz and Ruth marry. And in a really beautiful moment, Ruth doesn't open up her apron, but she opens up her womb. And she places a child into the lap of Naomi saying you're full now. And that child is going to be the grandfather of David, the king, who is the father of Jesus, who is the person who brings fullness to the whole world. So it's a little theme. If you don't see it, if you're not looking for it, 
you might not see it, but you're supposed to see it through this beautiful little story. And so we'll take time to just point out different pieces. So I'm going to have you just remain seated because I want to read the whole thing so you get a sense of it, whole of chapter one. And we'll do this each time we read a chapter because it's helpful to see the whole story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other name was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. When she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food, so she set out for the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in your house of your husband. And then she kissed them, and, lifted, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return to you with your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. Marrying? No. No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, will be, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And they came to Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought a calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word.
I wonder if you know the name Meep Geis. Meep Geis. When Meep was 10 years old, she lived in poverty in Austria, and that poverty was due to the end and ravaging of her country after World War I. So her parents put her on a train by herself at 10 years old to go to Amsterdam and live with a foster family, at least for a time. Turns out she lived there for the rest of her life. As an adult, Meep worked in a small operation making additives for jelly. And she was somewhat successful there. She got married. Her boss's name was a man named Otto. And in 1940, the Nazis invaded Amsterdam. And because of her boss, Otto was Jewish, he had to quickly find a way to protect his wife and his two daughters, as, long, as well as four other friends. And they were scrambling. They couldn't get out of the country. And there was a small annex that was connected to the jelly factory that they lived and hid in. And, of course, they thought the hiding was going to be temporary. It turned out to be two years. And Meep Geis was not Jewish, so she ran the factory. And for two years, she supplied all the food and information to these eight people who lived in this annex. And as difficult as it was, it really brought this these families together in a very difficult time. And, of course, Meep Geis and her husband were risking their lives to supply food to these Jews in hiding. And just before the war ended, the Nazis found the eight people in hiding. They came and raided the annex. They took everything that was valuable. They sent the eight people to a concentration camp, and only one of them survived, the man, Otto. And Otto came back to Amsterdam, and he literally had lost everything, his family, his house, his business. And he connected again to Meep Geis. And Meep Geis, while he was in the concentration camp, went up to the annex, and she saved one thing that had she thought had value. It was a diary. It was a diary of one of the girls. She kept it for the two years they were in hiding. And Otto, when he returned, he took the diary, and then he published it. And it's called, as you might know, the diary of Anne Frank, because she worked for Otto Frank. Meep Geis went on to live to 100 years old. She died in 2010. And she loved to go around and tell the story and remind people of just the value of caring for others. And she would always say this in her story, even an ordinary secretary, an ordinary housewife, or a teenager, they can, in their own small ways, turn on a small light in a dark room. Even if you're very ordinary, you can turn on a small light in a dark room. There's a great series that you can find. I think it's from the National Geographic uh, Association. It's called A Small Light, and it's about the life of Meet Geist. It's really worth watching. From the world's point of view, Ruth was a very ordinary person. In fact, one of the reasons Ruth is included in the Bible is for people who feel very ordinary. 
she wouldn't be noticed. It's not somebody that you would take notice of. It's not somebody on the world stage that their name is worth even recording. But Ruth, because of her faithfulness, God used her to turn on a small light in a dark country, in a, in a dark family, which turned on a small light for a dark country. And of course, she was the great, great, great something grandmother of Jesus who turned, on, turned out to be the light of the world. And so one of the, mean, one of the reasons we have this tiny little chapter stuffed in this big book called the Bible are for people probably that feel like you and me. I'm just an ordinary person. I mean, like when the history books are written, my name isn't going to be in them. No, no middle schooler is going to say, well, you know, Paul Phillips, he was born in 1963. I mean, my name's not going to appear anywhere. Your name likely not going to appear anywhere. A hundred years after you're dead, most of your relatives won't know you unless they go on Ancestry.com. And so it's, it's tough sometimes because you get up and you just think, well, what am I doing? What, what con- kind of contribution am I making? And for anybody who feels that way, the book of Ruth is for you. Anyone who feels like they might just be a small light, a small light can do something very powerful. So I want to start by just looking at these first five verses and setting the scene for the entire story. And it starts right away in this very first verse, in the days the judges ruled the famine, ruled there was a famine. So immediately as a Bible reader, if you've read from Genesis up here to Judges, you know, okay, it's the day of the judges. And if you would just turn back one page, or maybe it's just on the page next to you, The most famous verse in the book of Judges is the very last one. In those days, meaning the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is the backdrop. This is the place that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz all intersect. They're they're coming into a culture. It's hard for us to imagine, but just try to imagine being in a culture where everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. Can you imagine that? stretcher you're thinking in that way but it's a time that really is a time of darkness chapter 1 verse 1 is not a pleasant time it's a dark time and in the book of judges there's this spiral this sequence the people of God say they're really going to trust God but then they just start drifting away and pretty pretty soon the drift turns into a running away And when they run away from God, the culture just collapses. Their economy collapses. An enemy comes in and overtakes Israel. They become so miserable or so enslaved. They say, we've gotten too far away from God. They turn back to God. They cry out to God. And God supplies a judge, which you're supposed to think a military general. Some strong person, like Samson was a judge, comes in and he gets busy by getting rid of the enemies and trying to turn people back to God. And this spiral happens over and over again. They come back to God, but pretty soon they drift back away, and then they cry out, and they need a judge. It's a bad spin cycle. But the book of Ruth provides a a small light in this spin cycle, that even in the darkness of your own life, even if you're in a bad spin cycle, God's still at work. He hasn't forgotten about you. It may look dark. It may look hopeless. But there, 
he's at work, and he may be sending you or someone into your life that's just a small light, like Naomi receives from Ruth. The first person we meet is Elimelech. His name means, my God is king. Elimelech had a wife, Naomi, two sons, and they lived in the promised land, but the promised land wasn't looking too promising. And so they lived in this place, and Elimelech's at a fork in the road, and many of us have been in this fork, and some of us are at this fork in the road right now. I'm at a place that doesn't look too promising. It doesn't look too fulfilling. And I either can really trust in God and lean in on him, or I can just use my own wisdom and go down this path that looks brighter. You ever been there? This, this is a, a very familiar fork in the road. If, if I continue to follow after God, it, I just look down the road. It doesn't look like a, a, the lane of prosperity. But if I, if I decide just to say, hey, I want to go this way because this looks like greener pastures, then you decide for yourself what you want to do. And although Elimelech's name meant my God is king, Elimelech was a man of his times, and he decided to do what was right in his own eyes. Turns out God wasn't really king for Elimelech. Comfort was. His own desires were. wonder if you're familiar with that. I mean, you say God is king, but when it comes down to being comfortable, being provided for, I've got to do it myself. I've got to go out and grab it and make it happen myself. And so Elimelech loaded up his family on mules, and they made their way to Moab. Now, when you get to this part of Moab, you're supposed to, when you hear Moab, this is what you're supposed to do. <gasps> what? I mean... Of all the countries, not Moab. I mean, that's like the last country you would want to go to. You're just in hard to hear this as the reader. It's like, I don't know if you heard recently that one of the American soldiers in Korea defected to North Korea. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, if you're going to defect, how about any other country in the whole world? I mean, not North Korea. That's like the worst place on the planet. And that's exactly what Elimelech's doing. He's going to North Korea. He's going to the worst place in the world. You can read for yourself in Numbers 25, which is, would be worth your reading today. The Moabite people were constantly enslaving the Israelites. They were just their, their arch nemesis their arch enemy. And the Moabite, at one point in Numbers 25, they seduced the Israelite men into sexual relations that were connected with worship. That They were into temple prostitution. So it wasn't just prostitution, as bad as that would be. You would go to the temple, and you would have sexual relationships with a woman in the temple, and it would all be part of your worship service. Can you just see how foreign this is from following after God. And so th this is what the people were like that lived in Moab. If you're a true follower of God, you just don't go live in Moab. So just, it's a story. It's a true story. Not everything's said, but let's, let's try to give Elimelech the benefit of the doubt just for a moment. Maybe he was just planning to just go for a season. 
Maybe the crops were growing in Moab, and I'm just going to go over there for a little season, and then I'm going to come back. Maybe that's what he was thinking. But you see in verse 2, it has this phrase. This is where I'm picking up the remote control. He remained there. Some of your versions might say, he settled in. Maybe it says, they made it their home. Now, I don't, I don't know exactly what's happening here, but I get the feeling it feels like Psalm 1. You tracking with me? Blessed is the man who does not, remember, walk, and then what's the next thing? Stand, and what's the last thing? Sit. I mean, maybe Elimelech went and said, I'm just going to be over here and kind of walking around, but then... The, then I started settling in, and I stood there, and then I, I sat down. Anyway, he, he settled there. And what a defining moment for Elimelech and his whole family. The same tension he has, you, you have, I have. Which way will we go? So often our choices are not just our own individual choices. You're, you're, you're bringing a whole family with you on this choice. If you're a college student here, many more will be in the second service. You're going to come to this fork in the road again and again, especially in the next year to four years. You're going to have this choice. Which way will I go? I'm going to make a defining choice here. Am I going to go go after the, the road for the Lord, or am I going to just make my own decisions? One commentator says this, like Elimelech, we act as sovereign of our own lives We make choices that seem best in our own eyes with little or no reference to God. We say, God is king, yet we live in a way that makes it evident that we are the king. So maybe you're at that fork in the road right now. And by God's providence, you're sitting here today. Choose wisely. You can lie to yourself and just say, Paul, it's just for a little season just going to go over there, walk around, get myself together, and come back over here just for a moment. Just, hey, it's just one time. Oh, you can end up walking and standing and sitting there the rest of your life. Elimelech dies. And you feel the weight of the disastrous, his disastrous decision. He dies, the sons die. And when Elimelech dies, this is the question I ask myself, and if we were watching this as a movie, I'd press pause here. And I'd say, why didn't Naomi go back home? I mean, I don't know. What would you say? I mean, it's not going well. My husband dies. And I'm sort of this widow. Why don't I go back to Bethlehem? At least my family can help me out. I don't know. Here's what one commentator says. We hate the thought of having to return home with broken lives. Having to admit that our previous choice was wrong. Somehow it seems easier. See if this resonates. Somehow it seems easier to bear the pain of continued emptiness than to confess our foolish pursuits. 
you really know you should go back home. You know it would be better. But if I go back home, I've got to tell everybody I was a fool. And I'd just rather bear emptiness than that. Don't be that proud. She stays. Her two sons marry Moabite women. Both sons die. Look at verse 5. Notice how the storyteller says it. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. What woman? Naomi. Why does he say, say why didn't why doesn't say Naomi? I think it's because Naomi's lost her identity. She doesn't know who she is anymore. So the writer says she's lost herself in this. I mean, yes, she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's now got these two Moabite women following after her. She's going to go back home. But she's just lost her own identity. Some of you have experienced this. You've been in some kind of emotionally painful situation. And it lasts when it lasts a long time. What happens is you lose your identity when you're in pain. I've, I've been in that situation many years ago. It was just in a long, slow, difficult period of time. And it's hard to explain, but you know what I'm saying. If you've been in there, you just feel like, I don't know who I am anymore. And I, I think the author is trying to tell us, Naomi just doesn't know who, she's lost herself in these bad choices. And you know that because at the very end of the chapter, verse 19 and 20, she comes home and the people say, is this Naomi? And what does she say? Don't call me Naomi. Her name means pleasantness. Don't call me pleasant. Call me what? Bitter. See, she's changed her own identity. She lost her identity and she said, I've got a new identity now. I'm just a bitter old woman. Hmm. And you see from reading through this chapter that I'll point out to you here in a moment, like all bitterness, when left unchecked, it leads in a bad direction. First thing, Naomi's bitterness leads to blaming. You see this in verse 13. Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 21 and 22. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought a calamity upon me. See, apparently Naomi was familiar with Genesis chapter 3. That when you sin, what do you do? Shift blame. What did, who did Adam blame? Remember? He blamed Eve, and who else did he blame? You know this, don't you? God. The woman you sent me. Remember that phrase? I mean, I've got a double outlet. I mean, I'm totally innocent. It's either the woman or it's the woman you sent me. Which one is it, God? You see how that's happening? And this is Naomi just saying, hey, I'm not taking any responsibility for the bad decisions my husband made. I'm not taking any responsibility for the bad decisions I've made. It's the Lord has done this. He's to blame. See, 
bitterness leads to blaming, and you just can feel it in yourself. When I'm beginning to blame, then a root of bitterness might be buried in my soul somewhere. Hebrews 12, 15, take care that no root of bitterness springs up and causes you trouble. Got any bitterness? How about just a root? It's just growing underneath, but at some point, mm, it's going to spring up. Take care. Second, the bitterness leads to blindness. She can't see what she can't see chapter four. We understand that. But she can't see that this difficulty, God has brought her back to be a part of redemptive history. She can't see it. It's just all bitterness all the time. And actually, her pain is leading her home. But she can't see it right now. Strikingly, her bitterness leads to blindness toward Ruth. This is the thing that I find almost hard to conceive of. In verse 17, 16 and 17, let's look at those. These are the verses, if you don't know anything about Ruth, you might know these verses. These are the verses that get crocheted and put on your wall. These are the verses that you say at a, at a, a marriage ceremony. Ruth is pouring out her heart saying, I'm not going to leave you. Don't urge me to leave. Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Where you die, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. It's, it's this beautiful outpouring of her soul. And notice in verse 18, her response was, it, it says in the ESV, she said no more. But in the Hebrew, it reads this way. When Naomi realized Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. Imagine hearing that and you just don't have anything to say. Okay, let's go. This beautiful outpouring, no, thank you for staying with me. I mean, no, there's no movement emotionally from Naomi to Ruth. Why? Because she's bitter. And her bitterness blinds her even to the person God has put right in front of her. It's okay if she can't see chapter 4, but she can see Ruth, but she can't. Why? She's bitter. She's bitter. And then 19 and 20 through 21, they come back as this Naomi. You notice who's not noticed? Ruth. Naomi doesn't say, hey, I want, to, I want you to introduce Ruth to you. Nobody in the crowd says, who is this person? If you were using it like a film, you'd have Ruth and Naomi come up, the crowd come in, and then slowly Ruth would just recede. She would become blurry, and then it would be like she didn't exist. Naomi doesn't notice her. Nobody from Israel notices her. I wonder how Ruth felt. A lot of immigrants feel this way. This is a very common feeling. I, I left and I was somebody, but when I got here, I just lived my life in the shadows. I'm not noticed. It's like I don't even exist. That's how Ruth would explain how she feels. So I just want to stop here 
and ask ourselves as we circle back to Naomi, is there just a root of bitterness growing in your soul somewhere that's going to poison now every relationship you have? Maybe it's blinding you to good things God has put right in front of you, but you just can't see them. Let's conclude here by just taking a brief look at Ruth. We're going to be able to circle back around to her in the next three weeks as well. You don't see it here in chapter 1, but the, this bitter dam in Naomi's life doesn't break open in chapter 1, but you see how God's going to use the love of Ruth to just crack that open. Ruth was a small light. She begins to pierce the darkness. Apparently, Naomi hears about food growing again in Bethlehem, so they, she's like the prodigal son, comes back home. It's clear that Naomi somehow has taught her two daughters-in-law about the Lord, Yahweh, when it's capitalized, it's a personal name. Naomi doesn't think the Lord would have any use for them back in the promised land. Did you notice that? You should go back home and, and serve your own gods. I don't think she would be the person you'd want on your evangelism team. <laughs> right? I mean, you've come this way, but I mean, you might as well just go back to your own gods. I mean, this isn't a good situation. One of the daughter-in-laws does what really it seems reasonable and returns home. But Ruth makes this great statement in verse 16 and 17. It seems to me Ruth trusts more in the Lord than Naomi trusts in the Lord. You ever notice that happens sometimes? Somebody who has this long history with the Lord, somehow just the, the trust just fades off. But this person who's brand new, oh, they're all for Jesus and they're just going to go for it. And I think that's part of what this punch in the wall that begins to break the dam open in Naomi's life. She makes this jarring decision to migrate into Israel. And we'll ask the question, what does she see when she gets there next week? It's disorienting. It's dangerous. It's interesting that usually when a, 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 somebody from another country migrates into another country, they're looking for a better life, not a worse life. See, Ruth would have had a better life if she went back home. She could get married. She, you know, she's got her family. She should just choose that. But she says, no, I'll sign up for a worse life if I can stay with you, Naomi. Ruth was willing to empty herself knowing she might have a worse life in order to love Naomi. Ruth was willing to identify as one of Naomi's people in order to show her covenant love. Ruth was willing to unite her life to Naomi, even if it meant her own death. Do you see where I'm going? There are a lot of Old Testament shadows of Jesus, and Ruth is one right here. He's willing to empty himself to come and attach to us. He's willing to be one of us in order to show us covenant love. He's one who's willing to unite even in death. So his small light, the light of the world, could break in to the darkness of our own shadows. 
I got to put the remote control down. This is a beautiful story. You should take the next four months and just read one chapter at a time as we go through. You make your own highlights. I can't make every comment. But I want you to know Ruth is a, is a book for most of us who feel like, how could God use me? One, one small light. Oh, you have no idea. I mean, you wonder in heaven what Naomi would think now. Holy smokes! Look what I got to be a part of. I'm so sad. I was so bitter for so long. Thank you, Ruth, for being Jesus to me. See, you're going to get that chance. You're going to get a chance to be Jesus to some bitter person. And just stand near them and say, I'm committed. No matter what else happens, I'm going to stay faithful. Let's pray. Lord, what, what a beautiful story this is. What a challenge it is to our own hearts to be a Ruth-like person to others. To, to be challenged in our own bitterness that somehow may have taken root in our own soul. To, to trust you even when things are dark, not to become our own king and go our own way. Lord, would you uh, speak to and minister to and convict and challenge every heart and soul here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.